Episode 22 with Mark Serto. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing, and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you connect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matters, I have a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, do your own research, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by the Finnish fusion artist Axel Kessler. The song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Mark Serto, who spoke with me from his home in Atlanta, Georgia. Mark has been studying meditation since 1977, exploring the mind, consciousness, and the nature of self. He is a professional musician and sound engineer, and worked with out-of-body explorer legend Robert Monroe from 1988 until Robert's death in 1995, on the art of reverse engineering EEG readings into tangible binaural beat matrices to affect consciousness. During his years at the Monroe Institute, Mark continued his studies in consciousness from the many disciplines available and produced most of the recorded material in the Institute's catalogue. He has participated as a consultant in various clinical studies, testing the effectiveness of binaural beats to invoke brainwave responses. Because of Mark's close association with Robert Monroe, I took this opportunity to ask a few questions about this highly influential figure in the applied consciousness research field. I feel very lucky to have had this indirect presence of Robert Monroe on this podcast via Mark. Mark is also ideally placed to explain the working of binaural beats to alter our consciousness and induce out-of-body travel, a process originally developed at the Monroe Institute under the name HemiSync, and we discuss some of the interesting research on correlation between brainwaves and states of consciousness. One of the things I really appreciate about Mark's approach is that he goes beyond phenomena or remarkable states of consciousness to applying them practically in our life. The tagline for his own consciousness development school, the Triad Mind, is I know that I'm more than my physical body, now what? And that is a question we also explore. There are a few occasions where Mark's sound disappears, but it is only ever a couple of seconds and should not stop you from getting a lot of value out of this episode. Yeah, Mark, thanks so much for making yourself available on your your evening, my morning. Oh, well, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kim. I really do appreciate you asking. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff I would like to cover, and, and I guess we'll, we'll probably um, do it somewhat chronologically. And I know that 
in terms of your own chronology, one of the big uh, important aspects in your own life that brought you into or perhaps deepened your exploration of consciousness and I imagine had quite a strong influence in the, the paths that you've chosen was your, your meetings with Bob Monroe, who is uh, definitely one of the big um, names in the out-of-body experience literature and anybody who's into out-of-body experience who hasn't looked at Bob Monroe's books, um, I would definitely recommend that they do so. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, maybe just briefly to set the scene, uh, explain how you came across him and then, you know, explore a, a little bit of... of well yeah. yeah, a yeah. series of well-planned accidents is the way to, to describe that best. I, um, he, his uh, work definitely deepened the work that I had begun. I started all of this at a fairly young age. I was maybe 15, 16 years old when I got involved in meditation. But uh, about age 21, 22, I was living in New York City at the time. And I had just uh, finished skilling myself as a recording engineer. Prior to that, I was a musician full-time. And um, I got, uh, I fell in love with a woman, I married her, and we found ourselves living in Charlottesville, Virginia. There was a very strong pull to go live there. I had no idea who Bob Monroe was or what the Monroe Institute was all about. My goal was to just continue my life as a recording engineer and and to make a life for my new family in Charlottesville. And I opened a recording studio in 1986, I want to say, late 1986. And uh, I was in England and returned from a session that I was doing at the Abbey Road Studios and came back, checked my uh, my answering machine, you know, how 80s is that, right? And um, that, there was this old guy on there who said, uh, call Bob Monroe. And that was all there was to it. And I kind of figured, well, this old fellow really didn't know that he hit a recording studio, but I'll give him a call back to let him know you dialed the wrong number. And uh, I called him and I reminded him that he had left this message. And uh, next thing I knew, uh, we were having a nice long conversation. He told me that he too had a recording studio in another part of central Virginia, about 30 miles away from Charlottesville. And, uh, uh, I was very curious as to what it was he was doing there, you know, because I thought it was pretty much the only act in town. I went there, I met with him, and uh, we basically laughed and fell in love with each other. And I, next thing I knew, I was working for him uh, on a you know contractor type basis. We were working on one of his uh, later series of recordings at that time, anyway. He was getting a little up in years and his dexterity with a mixing console was starting to fail and his fingers weren't quite as nimble as they once were. And uh, so I took up the position and uh, 13 years later, I left the Institute for what was a, supposed to be a part-time job. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, it had a very um, strong impact on me. It, it defined uh, a lot of the work that I continue to do today and was uh, there's just no escaping his influence to answer your question. Yeah, it's absolutely integral to what I do today. Mm. And how would you describe um, in terms of where you were at, you know, you, you started meditating, it sounds like as a young, as a young man. So you were was yes. a teenager still. Right. And, um, sounds like you were generally very focused. You know, when I think of myself at 15, 16, and even in my early 20s when you already had your, your training and so on, 
I was so much still finding my way. Mm. Um, but it sounds like you were already had this strong sense of certain things that were important to you. Then I had, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to ask then. So, so when, when Bob came into your life and the things that he was talking about, especially the out of body travel, was that Mm -hmm. something new for you or was that something you'd already thought about and it just deepened that? No, I had gotten involved in meditation at that young age because I was trying to focus my intention. I had heard, uh, I came across a work from a fellow named Jose Silva who'd written a book called The Silva Method of Mind Control. I think they've changed it since then. I think the organization's still in existence. But it was uh, basically a, not so spiritual, but more of a um, uh, paying attention of the way the inner working of the, the, the way the mind works, being mindful, but not in the Buddhist sense, just being aware of your thoughts and how your thinking process was uh, affecting the way that you move and interact with the world and how you limit your own belief structures. So I wanted to make sure being, you know, we're talking about the 1970s now. So there really wasn't a lot, at least in New York City, to my in my circle of friends, there weren't anybody to, to learn this stuff from. Uh, so I learned it through books and through practice. And my mother had also practiced a bit of transcendental meditation. So to answer your question, the out-of-body experience really wasn't what my focus was. It was the the ability to know where my subconscious was limiting me and how to overcome that sort of thing, especially when it came to fear, and to you know stay completely focused on the task at hand. It was a process of self-actualization more than mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah. I had a transcendent experience or two during that time, but I knew nothing of the out-of-body experience. So when I met with Bob, he was actually the first person that I had ever heard of that actually had this experience. Yeah. So that I can really relate to that because for me, um, for me, it also started with meditation. Just any kind of self-exploration really started with meditation. And I had no reference point. So when people first started talking about out-of-body travel and, and so on, that was a whole nother door opening in a whole nother realm. So I imagine that would have been quite impactful. I don't know. Can you remember how that, you know, shifted your, your perception of, well, it gave a framework for what I was, I had understood by that point in time. Cause I think I was about 26, 27 when I first met Bob. Um, but it had a, it gave me a frame of reference for the rather um, transcendent varieties of experiences that I had come upon uh, while meditating uh, wasn't really my intention, but through several of the practices, you know, because I, I moved away from the Silva practice and into some of the more yogic practices and found myself in in states where I was um, I was in such a state of observance of the the levels, multiple levels of I that one can achieve during a meditative practice. And when I kept moving back from that, I found myself in a state of not really having uh, an eye there in the experience. It was the first time that I'd ever transcended my personal sense of I. So I didn't know what to do with that information. And Bob would, you know, had given me some clues as to uh, what that meant for me and, and how that was interpreted in his own experiences. 
So, how did, uh, so I'm just curious how, um, you know, because as far as you knew initially, you just went there to help with some sound engineering. Right. At what point did you realize that this isn't just sound engineering, this is sound engineering to alter consciousness? Does that happen day straight one. away? Or, yeah. yeah, day one. Yeah, he, um, he explained to me, he, was, uh, he kept his cards close to his chest for the first hour or so, just kind of sussing me out and asking me what my experience was in meditation because that came into the conversation pretty early. And um, as he was talking about what it was, because I naturally asked him, what do you guys do here? Obviously, you're making recordings. What type of recordings? And he talked about it in kind of loose terms and roundabout phrase. Maybe after about 10 minutes of carefully listening, I said, oh, it's very much like a deep meditation experience where, and you're using sound to uh, enhance or to coordinate brain waves to, outcome, to affect a specific outcome of experience. And he said, yes. And I said, well, that, that makes perfect sense to me. He said, well, you ought to do very well here. And that was, that was it. Hmm. Um, and so at that stage, it's, I've read all of his books, but it's been a quite a while and I'm actually not sure whether the answer is in them, but I, I have wondered, uh, so, you know, what kind of, uh, teacher let's say bob was you know was there was there teachings were there classes was there sort of workshops that he would run or was one he of more... my favorite... yeah go ahead i'm sorry i was going to ask was, was he, he more facil facilitator by creating these these um tech technologies that people could then use one of the things that i absolutely loved and admired about bob monroe was that he was a facilitator and would eschew the notion of being a guru or a teacher. He simply wrote his books about his own experiences. He would um, offer gentle guidance from anybody who asked about having similar experiences. For instance, if I said, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know about the nature of my inner guidance or something, how do I go about that? And uh, he would say, uh, you know, simply go to focus 15 and turn left and ask, you know, <laughs> I mean, he would make kind of a joke out of it. Basically, his his theory was you had to find out these things for him for yourself. Otherwise, it just becomes a an exercise in having somebody else's experience. Yeah, you understand what I mean by that? Absolutely. He believed that teachers were helpful if they were guide stones um, that just kind of pointed you in a general direction. So when he mapped out consciousness through this concept that he called focus levels, there was a teaching uh, available and it was in, in concert with the sounds that were being used. And the idea of the teaching was to just kind of give you a general map of a specific territory in this vast thing that we call consciousness. So, for instance, his uh, idea of Focus 10 was basically a springboard, and I'll kind of give you an, uh, an explanation for your listeners. Focus 10 for him was a springboard of being able to lead to various other tr more transcendent levels of consciousness away from the body, and he, you knew that from a personal level experience because your body was asleep and your, your mind was awake. 
So the question is, what type of, you know, the first question you're, you're going to have to ask yourself is if I'm normally asleep and unaware, but I'm in the state where all of a sudden I know my body is asleep because let's say I hear myself snoring and my mind is engaged in some kind of vignette, what am I? Where's the sensory input coming from? And that's a very big question to be beginning with. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those because it tells you that there's a separation between mind and body. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a real key experience. So that's that experience he called focus ten. That's correct. Yeah. And, and maybe would, just, from that. Sorry, I'm just going to explain. If you could ask, say a bit more about these focus levels, because I know you had quite a few, and they right. He created reference states entire, of mind or states of consciousness, right? Well, I. It's it's hard to really call them. The, I'll put that as a sidebar, different states of consciousness, and, and just give you a little bit of a, or your listeners, a little bit of an idea of what these this map is. So you begin with this focus 10, and then he would encourage you, and it would just be a simple counting method, and the frequencies, the hemisync frequencies would change a little bit to alter your brainwave consciousness, just to give you a bit more awareness while you're remaining that that healthy level of unattachment through sleeping and your awareness would tend to expand. So you'd pick up even more information. So he called this focus 12, uh, the state of expanded awareness beyond that you would lose a sense of time and place. So he would call that focus 15, a a state of no time. And then from there, it just went into more transcendental types of imagery or, um, experiences like the that are so common in meditation like the experience of traveling through light or to a light uh, which people perceive as oneness or divinity and beyond that there were various stratum but we could take up a whole show just talking about that cosmology i think that gives you an idea yeah okay but how many how many focus levels in, in what sort of increments did he move with these focus levels was it 10 15 20 or no, it Much wasn't that sequential. That. Yeah, I don't really know how he came about these um, levels in terms of the numbers, uh, but they're not sequential. And when I left there, 35 was the highest level. Okay. Of course, Bob had passed by that point in time. So this this was just an increase that was done by the, uh, by the staff uh, in the lab where I was uh, serving and uh, some of the... But they were definitely transcendent variety, you know, where uh, the explanations of what one was experiencing were part of Bob's books and his belief structures rather than um, solely an experience of um, consciousness from a, from a subjective point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned hemi-sync there, and I'd like to, we'll come back to that because I'd like to, to explore that a bit as well. But um, uh, in terms of just, uh, just a little more about Bob as a person, so he, he, or in terms of how this influenced him, he was very much focused on exploring the, we can talk about it, whether we refer to it as inner worlds or, or other dimensional worlds, but what about in his everyday life um, aspects that in many other spiritual traditions people have, like, for example, communicating with 
uh, non-physical people or somehow considering them relevant or significant in your physical life? Was that something that featured in his... You mean in terms of like non-physical guides and that sort of thing? Yeah. Or even people that weren't guides, you know, just like people we might classify as as ghosts or, or somehow presences that one has to navigate even in our physical life. I understand. Yeah. Well, um, how do I explain Bob? So Bob wasn't a robe wearing, um, philosophically minded, um, guru type of teacher. As I said before, he really just kind of pushed that whole image aside. He didn't want to really be identified as such. He was a very funny person. We spent a lot of time laughing. We spent a lot of time creating. We got to know each other on a very uh, deep and personal level. Um, We spent a lot of time together just doing very mundane and normal things. And if you did not know that he wrote books on the out-of-body experience or had an institute, you would find him just to be an average uh, senior citizen who really enjoyed eating hamburgers and smoking cigarettes. All right. So that was the Bob Monroe I knew. There were times where we'd be sitting and I'd have some deep philosophical question because I was a young man in the presence of somebody who was more experienced and learned than I. And I would ask him questions. And there would be times where it appeared to me that he would sort of step out of the picture in some way. I mean, I, I'm fairly attuned to subtle energies and I would see this shift in him that would be really interesting. Other people have described it as him sort of disappearing almost like he would get uh, uh, fuzzy but no he he was very material and real to me but it seemed that there was some shift in him that would that would take place and he you know utter this little phrase that would help me deepen my own personal exploration and the next thing I knew Bob would be back in the room with me so um, I wouldn't say he was the type of man that walked around talking with angels all the time or uh, talking with spirits all the time. I think he was mildly aware of the energetic presences of not only the living, but the non-physical. But it wasn't something that he was constantly like a channel or something, you know, walking into a room and then, you know, just becoming this alter ego or, you know, possessed by some yeah. deity. You know, it wasn't, yeah. he wasn't like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe there is a, a framework in the Monroe Institute um, or there's an emphasis on assisting people who've recently died. Uh, yes, lifeline program. Mm-hmm. Right. As, and that's something that Bob developed as well or did that develop? It was. Uh, yeah. So could you talk yeah, a little bit about talk a little bit about that? Well, his wife Nancy was in the process of dealing with cancer, and she had courageously worked with this for a long time and just could not um, overcome it. And so Bob became very curious, I think, about what had happened uh, in the afterlife and in, through some of his uh, previous experiences that he shared in his first two books. Uh, he he developed a bit more courage around that and decided he wanted to explore for himself what possible existences would be available to somebody who did not have a strong religious 
belief and background. Um, I can't tell you whether or not Nancy did, but I know that Bob did not. He was raised by uh, rather agnostic parents, we'll call them. So he really didn't have any indoctrination into an afterlife concept, but he did have some ideas, I think it would be fair to say, uh, from his previous out-of-body experiences that we do survive physical death and that consciousness, and at least as, you know, in, in the cohesive form that we experience as, as individuals and, you know, not getting into that loose, you know, just become a part of everything type of consciousness, um, that that type of personal consciousness would exist somewhere. And so he did a bit of exploration around that in his out-of-body travels and uh, discovered that uh, there was indeed this um, type of existence that I can only compare it to the concept of the Elysian fields. And if you know that term, no, uh, you know, no, where actually, you, what is well, you, walk through, you go through the light and the, and you go through the tunnel and traveling through, through the light. And many people refine themselves in a field type of environment. And it was okay. referred to as the Elysian fields. I think in Greco Roman mythology, as a, you know, a park-like setting where it's very nature-oriented. We'll call it a return to the Garden of Eden sort of thing. Mm. And Bob found himself there, and he was very entranced by it because he wanted to, he believed that that was the home base of his personal spirit. And when he was taken there by his own guidance, if I remember the story correctly, um, he sat and basked in this um, just fantastic environment uh, that was akin to a beautiful field or a garden in the earth and heard this beautiful music and you know, playing and it, he basked in it for the, for what seemed like an eternity. And then he started to notice if, if I remember the story correctly, that the music seemed to be on endless loop and the clouds seemed to be on an endless loop type of pattern where nothing changed. You know, it was all the same. It was just perfection, a circle of perfection. He understood at that moment, I believe, that uh, that's why so many of us reincarnate uh, after spending time there. But to your question, I'm giving you a lot of history here. To your question, while uh, Nancy was going through her uh, illness, knowing that death was impending, or at least her physical death was impending, Bob wanted to uh, set up a meeting point for her and he to to meet afterwards where he would go out of body and go to this place that he referred to as the park and considered it to be a focus level focus 27 to be specific and started doing some explorations around that and created a program for others to do the same thing so that if you didn't have a particular belief structure and you wanted to focus your intention once you did pass uh, through the veils that you would have a place to go to. So this is a program that is designed to help people before they die. Yes. To plan yes. For, for, for the transition and to get to okay. Yeah. Right. And there are other aspects to the program as well, which include uh, some physical healing exercises. But most importantly, I have to say that the, uh, it's also a means for uh, people who are doing this program at the Institute to um, retrieve 
others that have been locked or lost in that process between the physical world and non-physical world where they don't know where to go. And these would be the spirits that you were mentioning before. Yeah. So um, that, that's part of the program is to be of assistance to them, take them to another place. Okay. So that's what I think. I've, I had some friends tell me that they did some kind of practice inspired from the Monroe Institute that somehow involved transitioning or assisting um, deceased to come to a more greater state of consciousness. So that would be that, yes, that, that component. That is one aspect. And another possibility is that we are indeed retrieving aspects of ourselves rather yeah. than others, that the others are somehow an archetype, a aspect of uh, something that needs cleansing, healing, retrieval. Okay. So that kind of goes to, that's quite a philosophical difference then, isn't it? Or, or more than philosophical. It is. Um, it is experiential difference and that kind of leads me to i was going to ask you a bit about your your paradigm right your 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 overall framework um and maybe shifting a little bit now from the, the bob monroe although i'm curious how he would have influenced you and and to how you've you know integrated that for yourself now but for example in your in your paradigm does it include things like external non-physical People, so people who've died and people who haven't yet been born who live independent lives? Or, as you're saying, is it um, you, you're seeing things as, as multiple aspects of yourself when you have these experiences, that these are aspects of yourself that you're interacting with? Or maybe there's both versions, both are possible? I was going to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Um, <laughs> truth be told, I have, you're talking about, when you're talking about my paradigm, you're talking about the work that I'm doing or presenting with the triad mind at this point. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So I take a very, what I'll call a syncretic view of this thing that we call consciousness. I have been involved in its studies and found it and passionately delved into whatever was available to be looking at as, as far as um, ideas of what consciousness is and how it operates for a very long time. So I can I present that we are consciousness can be looked at rather than with a lot of focus levels as I present that consciousness can be seen in three distinct stratum, which are the conscious mind that which we're aware of in the moment, uh, the subconscious mind that which influences the way we interact and relate and what motivates and drives us where we store uh, multiple multiple amounts of uh, thoughts and feelings that are undigested things that have come up in dreams all of that content that lives in the subconscious and the superconscious which is this yearning for our connection with divinity because we all on some level suspect or hope at the very least that we are more than physical matter but we don't really know what that means so taking those three aspects or stratum of, of possible exploration within this thing that we call consciousness, I tend to look at all experience through those three lenses. So if I was to have an experience, say, and I've had many experiences, um, where I'm retrieving an aspect or someone in um, a uh, journey, say, at the Monroe Institute, 
that is uh, somehow locked in a, a void or something and is lost and departed this earth many years ago and has been wandering in the aethers forever as what we would loosely call a spirit or a ghost. If I was to retrieve some entity like that and take it to the park, when I came back, I would want to do a deep inquiry as to whether or not this individual was an aspect of myself that was not yet fully digested or integrated within my own personal psyche by exploring more about what that might represent in my subconscious, or perhaps I met somebody who is not me, as I understand, you know, me in, in terms of, you know, aspects of my own subconscious or uh, possible past lives or anything along those lines, but just a totally separate being that I was bringing aid and comfort to, I would say that in that uh, realm, I would probably be considered an angel of sorts, you know, so I'm willing to engage in all of that thinking rather than landing on any one particular answer as being the definitive one, because I'm really big on inquiry and curiosity. I think the more I can keep an open mind and not put a foothold, the better my relationship becomes with the unknown, which allows me a deeper sense of exploration. Uh, if that answers your question well enough. Well, it, it partially answers it. Um, so uh, in your reference point, um, are there other, I mean, do you have a view? Like, are you still, cause it sounds a bit like, you know, when you're talking about you keeping an open mind to the, to the inquiry, are mm -hmm. there certain things where you've landed and said, okay, well, there's many things I don't understand, but I do understand that, for example, there are other dimensions where there are people who live. Um, and when I die, I will go and live in those dimensions. I don't exactly know how, you know, these certain things about that, but I know that much or that's kind of thing, you know, are there certain so aspects where you've learned landed and said, this is these things I feel pretty clear about. Yeah, I would have to say, uh, yeah, I certainly have my own beliefs and, and understandings of say the super conscious strata. And I also know that the deeper I explore those beliefs and look for and ask the right questions and, move into a deeper frame of um, of experience that my frame of reference and my frame of understanding the changes as I go along. So I'm not, um, I'm not sold on any of my particular beliefs, but that said, yeah, I, I have quite a few of them actually. Um, you know, I, I most certainly believe we are multidimensional beings. Yeah. And the reason I understand and know that is through direct experience. I didn't read it in the book, but I don't truly know the full way that my multidimensionality is operating um, at any given time. I have to type, kind of uh, move into a unique state of consciousness, which allows me to access any number of my multidimensional aspects. Yeah, it's like a it's like a sort of an ongoing dance, right? Where sometimes we're more uh, cut off from that, and we're just really present to the physical. And other times, you have contact and and awareness right. of all those other aspects, right? 
Which is why I'm very uh, keen on the type of work that I'm doing now as bringing all three of those aspects into integration through the conscious mind. So in other words, my life has become a meditation. I am trying, and, and believe me, I've not perfected the work that I'm, I'm trying to teach others to do, but to, to be able to scan the band, to understand that there are, where, where my consciousness is, is, um, is, is, how do I want to say this? As, as I broaden my understanding of the sea in which we swim, which I call consciousness, I realize that my personal consciousness is more like a dial on a vast radio frequency band that's limitless. And so if I sit here and completely focus only on, uh, say, the camera in front of me and the question that you're asking and the tone of your voice and this, the, the, what's going on in the room, I cannot be totally pr- or partially present with what's going on in my own personal subconscious or the superconscious, which it helps to inform the words that are coming out of my mouth, for instance. If that, if you, if you get my meaning. So, um, well, it's, there's, there's a bit more subtlety to that. Um, I try to be aware that I tried to bring the focus of my conscious waking awareness to the fact that there are subtleties going on around me continually that help inform my experience of life and how I interact with it. And that is part of, um, the superconscious and subconscious projection. So I need to be aware of those two strata. And how do I become aware of that without, for instance, if I wanted in the past, and I'm still having, I'm still subject to this, if I want to deeply explore the superconscious or subconscious, I tend to have to turn my conscious engagement with physical reality off and go into this thing that I call meditation. Okay, there's a time for that. So, for instance, I'll do a meditation practice, and okay, I'm going to connect with aspects of myself that dwell within the superconscious guardian angels, guides, whatever you want to call them. Um, Those beings, however, are present always, and they reveal themselves through what Carl Jung beautifully called synchronicity in one of the many aspects or ways in which they can reveal themselves. The reason synchronicity is necessary, in my understanding, in order to tap me on the shoulder to get me to pay attention is because I'm not directing my conscious mind in a more fluidic fashion, which enables me to get the information that I need from the superconscious strata in any given moment while I'm walking around. So my personal meditation practice now is to walk around asking myself continually, what am I experiencing rather than what am I doing or directing my consciousness to get the job done? I've reached a certain point in my own uh, learning where it is entirely possible to be aware, oh, there was a subconscious reaction to that. And I know that because I felt it in my body. Or, oh, I'm getting a message that I need to say this to this individual because I can hear a certain eh, thing. I want to call it a tone in my own ear, inner ear. 
Mm. And it's like a little chime, and uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's your own little signal that, that has a meaning for you. There's a lot more subtlety involved, is, yeah. I guess what I'm going to say. But it enables me to you know, shift from one particular point in the radio dial to a whole other point in the radio dial. And you know, sort of maybe balance the three if I can get really good at what I'm trying to teach others to do and perfecting myself. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think I, I really, really resonates what you're sharing because that that balance for me that that um, I don't use those words, but I think if I understand right, what you call the superconscious is perhaps our more extent, expansive uh, awareness of self. Um, that connects us to um, well, the way I interpret it, it connects me to when I'm no longer in this physical dimension and I have full expansive state of consciousness with uh, you know understanding of my past life history and my existence beyond the physical that full awareness is one extreme and then mm -hmm. the other extreme is the embodied identity that I am right now that identifies with you know hunger and sexual desire and all the physical needs and that has all kinds of uh, psychological uh, you know damage in a way from that we all have from the way I was raised and and my childhood traumas and my all those things that are there and balancing those that's 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 been a big part for me and I feel that resonates with the subconscious which for me is all the psychological processes and then the superconscious which is the the beyond the physical and it meets right here in this body and manifests right. in the ways you i think touched on does that sort of resonate with yes you? absolutely and and you know it doesn't even have to be this grand metaphysical um experience you we all know these experiences through meeting it it's any experience that enables you to know that Kim and I are really not separate. And we can do this dance of separateness. When we have a conversation, there's Kim there, there's Mark here, we're having this dialogue. But in between the two of us, across all the miles that we're doing this, yeah. is a unified consciousness that is present. Uh, Christians talk, and, and the, the Judeo-Christian Bible talks about it as the, um, the omnipresence of God. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake talked talked about it in terms of the, the field theory. Uh, there are so many ways to talk about this and have been spoken about through aeons, but it's very present and it's very here and it's very real and it's very right now. We tend to experience these things in transcendent moments, like when you meet somebody and you fall in love. It's it's an elevated experience. There's a unification of mind that takes place between two very distinct parties where that unity pulls us together, reminds us of the truth of who we are. So it doesn't that's not a deep meditation state. That's not a samadhi experience, for instance, where you and and the divine become absolutely one or this uh, unity of being. There is a it's it's not so much of an either or it's a that it's an and mm. and it exists right here right now and one of the things that i had to get away from with my work at tmi was uh, uh 
teaching anything along the out-of-body experience because I, I, I help people have transcended experiences, but I don't want to promote state chasing, if you understand that term. It's I was going to ask you about that. Yes, state chasing. Right. It, it's, the, it's the desire to leave the body for a form of entertainment or a form of um, reducing the pain that one might be experiencing in one's life, yeah. you know, a, a way to get away from it all because they, they don't like their lives. My, the work I'm doing now is, uh, is more oriented towards live your life knowing that those things exist right here, right now. I mean, it really is the power of now in three different dimensions, truthfully. Mm. And it's not an easy road to hoe because the mind likes to wander. So you have to learn how to observe the content of mind to a certain extent, which uh, enables you to become a, a keener observer. And the more you observe, the broader your observations can become. Yeah. To yeah. interdimensional or multidimensional. So, so consciousness truly is multidimensional. So would you say, because you, you are in one of your, your uh, writings on your website, you talked about this state chasing and mm -hmm. how you, um, and I can very much relate to that. And I think it's probably quite common when we, when I was, when I first started meditating and I was experiencing these um, transcendent states that were very exciting. They're a lot of fun and they, they felt like they could take me away from my inner struggles and my inner pain. So that was uh, definitely a stage um, along the trajectory. Mm -hmm. But um, then there comes the point of, of integration. And if I understand where, where we really want to know that we have those, we can have those states and what they tell us about our nature of consciousness, but integrate them here in our physical life. And if I understand what you're saying, the key tool for that is observation. Is that that is the platform, absolutely. It's it's the the springboard. It's the it's probably the uh, greatest tool that you can apply next to uh, curiosity. Well, I'd say the curiosity is probably the motivation for wanting to become a keen observer. Yes, but you need to be able to observe on three distinct levels. I mean, anybody can through you know a simple meditation practice learn to be a keener observer of what's going on in physical time space around them. Uh, one has to really pay attention to what one's thoughts are if they are to become aware of what is motivating their subconscious reactions or belief structures in general. So many people think all day long, but very few of them probably spend much time thinking about their thinking, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering about that. Meditation through observance or becoming an observer is about watching your thoughts and not engaging them, not becoming uh, one of the techniques of meditation is that, not engaging them so that you don't become your thoughts. Your thoughts are simply a manifestation of something that needs exploration. The same applies for the out-of-body experiences or lucid dream experiences, any psi functioning. These are things that are quite natural to us if we can get beyond the places where we block them. 
And that blockage comes from subconscious imagery or subconscious belief structures and rigidity and lack of awareness training on the conscious mind level. And so how do you, what, what techniques do you use to unpack the subconscious belief systems, for example, which can be so subtle, right? You can find yourself, um, you know, like I'm in my 40s now and then you suddenly realize, wow, for the last 20 years I had these beliefs I didn't even notice. I had never even seen them, even though they were right. dominating all this area of my life. Sure. So to answer your question is to just begin a practice of mindfulness where you try to become a keener observer. One of the techniques that I do, at least this, the Triad Mind program, which teaches these things, is basically a program of self-actualization. So the stage one, which is currently available, uh, teaches one to not only become a keen observer in the conscious physical waking life, but also um, because the recorded exercises are either oriented towards the subconscious or the superconscious, the direct experience has to be given. You know, you have to have a sense of what it means to be aware in your subconscious imagery, and then you have to transcend that. So techniques are varied to answer your question specifically. Uh, being an observer is, is very high on that list. And then access to these varied states is, is secondary. So now you're becoming an observer in realms that you hadn't observed before. And you're, the further, more you can develop that observer self, the more that you can find yourself um, moving into higher realms, to use that phrase, and I, I, <laughs> I have a problem with the word higher and lower when it comes to these, when, when it comes to consciousness, but for lack of a better lexicon, we'll use that. But you can move into these higher realms with the ability to not get lost in the realm itself. And you don't confuse the map with the territory, for instance. Mm. You, uh, you become uh, more um, attuned to subtle energetics that are... Uh, Subtle energetics that are ever-present and, I was going to say, can be worked with and manipulated. But that goes into a higher level uh, than I think is necessary to answer your question. Yeah, okay. But um, just on that higher and lower... Sorry? It deals with creating one's own reality. Right, yeah. Um. Just on that higher and lower, as you were talking, I was thinking maybe more expansive and more constricted kind of states of consciousness. Yeah, sure. Those, those would be good words for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we and tend he, to think of the words sub and super as being high and lower, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but your question was, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. But you, so, you know, you shared with me um, before this, for this interview, a couple of your um, recorded meditations. Um, and they use, uh, I believe that, so they use binaural beats, I believe, yeah. which is, and we, we, I said, we were going to get back to hemi-sync. So, so hemi-sync is something that was developed by originally by Bob Monroe. Is that right? Yes, he was, he patented it back in the, uh, seventies, I want to say, and, or maybe sixties. And the, he 
got the idea from some research that a fellow named Gerald Oster was doing. And Gerald Oster was an audiologist who was able to look at EEG and notice that the brain would have specific like-kind responses to stimulus, sound stimulus. So um, the question for Bob at the time, because he was having uh, out-of-body experiences, was how could he control them and make them available to other people should they want to experience this? Because this is all very new in Western culture. So he, uh, he re- did a little research and uh, discovered that, well, okay, at the time they were talking about brainwave states in specific cycles per seconds or regions. So delta, alpha, theta, and beta were the four available states and the brainwave region of delta frequencies, which would imply that, uh, you know, the experience of delta is a non-experience. Most people are in deep sleep. So that the brain is working at a very slow rate of brainwave activity, brain, meaning that brainwaves are moving very slowly. So that rate was measurable at the time from 0.5 second, cycles per second to about 3.5 cycles per second. The next level up from that, which where it was possible to have any sense of awareness is called theta. And that was from 0.4 or 4 cycles per second up to relatively 7.5, depending on whose book you read. And then alpha, and it just went on from there with the the uh, larger EEGs or better EEG uh, mechanisms. But it now seems to me to be a relatively simplified uh, model of this thing that we call consciousness because we are not our brains. If consciousness were simply the output of our brains, then it would be uh, very easy for us. And there are lots of of doctors, I'm sure, would argue this point because they simply don't believe that there is uh, consciousness beyond the brain, that when the brain shuts down, that's it. There's no consciousness. But that certainly is not the case for those people who've had near-death experiences. Absolutely. Right. So, um, you know, consciousness is an enigma. So I've come to look at it to, to continue a little bit more about hemisync. Bob figured out that if he could detune sine waves and he used sine waves because they were mathematically pure and there'd be no artifacts and you could get very specific with your tuning frequencies, he would he saw that in doing that and delivering those two tones through a discrete stereo spectrum that he would get a like kind, just like Gerald Oster had seen, uh, response on an EEG. It wasn't perfect, but it was very close and very predictable. And over time, uh, from the time I was in the lab to the time that I left, we managed to get even uh, more specific and and wide using uh, a more precise method of of delivery. Um, But still, consciousness doesn't exist within the brain if that is your model right then all you can really say about these frequencies is that they put your mind to a certain level where you're able to observe outside of the realm of physical sensory input because you're basically asleep yeah so there seems to be i mean this raises quite a few interesting questions um uh so first of all I, I agree, and I think listeners to this podcast will generally uh, agree that uh, consciousness is not the brain, and yet somehow the brain seems to. It, it is a place where we have long looked for it, right? And we we there do seem to be um, 
meaningful com links between certain brainwave activities and certain states of consciousness. Correlations, um, yes. Yeah, certain correlations. But um, when you uh, describe that, the first thing that comes to mind is has, had Bob been able to measure um, his brainwaves in such a way that he would say, you know, focus 10 is linked to such and such a brainwave activity, focus 27 is linked to such and such a brainwave activity? Yes. Had he done yes, that? He'd done that work. Yeah, in the 50s and 60s. I think he began it in the 60s, actually, uh, maybe the mid to late 60s. Uh, he bought himself a device that was referred to as a mind mirror, and I believe it was a four-channel EEG that would basically give you a bit of information, and he was able to uh, look at the the recordings of, of him while he was in these various out-of-body states, and he said, well, I seem to have a lot of theta during this period and a lot of delta during this period or in the combination of the two because the, the one of the oversimplifications about the brainwave consciousness correlates which always bothers me is people talk about brainwave states in terms of brainwave activity and states of experience as being one in the same for instance uh alpha you know has correlations of a daydreamy kind of light meditation thing um, and the assumption is that because alpha runs between 8 hertz and, say, 12 hertz, again, depending on whose scale you're using, that my brain somehow is only putting out a frequency range between 8 and 12 hertz. Well, that's not true. And the more you get, the better EEG equipment you get, the more you realize that. That's why we were able to make some improvements in the lab during my time because we walked into a, or we had at our disposal a 24-channel EEG. The brain puts out a lot of frequencies. We're talking about a predominance, which oh. is important rather than an absolute. Okay, so it's, you're not in an alpha state and the brain is only putting out eight, eight, in between 8 and 12 hertz. You're in a predominantly alpha state and that may even last for short periods of time, even though the experience from a subjective point of view might be more oriented towards what people accept as an alpha type experience. So there's still a lot of questions involved in it. Um, I, I like using binaural beats because I find them to be predictable and they are uh, very efficient if they're done correctly in helping people go to sleep, remain awake, their bodies go to sleep, keep their consciousness awake, and continue to increase that separation between physical matter consciousness and conscious and the experience of consciousness as being the sea in which we swim rather than it being a personal thing. Yeah. Okay. And could you uh, just elaborate? You, you explained it really well in, in one of the pieces I read on your website. Um, but just uh, so maybe just for the listeners, just elaborate on how HemiSync um, helps create those frequencies in the brain. You 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 mentioned well, that there's two different yeah, two different frequencies play to different ears, but there's a particular um, right logic. Right, they are there. they are they are sine waves. Being the reason that the HemiSync use sine waves is because they're mathematically pure. Now I can't share with you or your listeners exactly what frequencies have been used and and how they were produced because I promised Bob a long time ago I would never share that information. So I, I'm a man of my word. But that said, what I can tell you 
is that the mathematical purity of using sine waves is of the utmost importance if you're trying to not create artifacts which are unpredictable because there are various because we're dealing with brainwave entrainment there are people who are susceptible to uh, say epileptic seizures you don't want to you know i know that binaural beats are everywhere on the internet and you can download them for free i don't know who these folks are that are doing this or what kind of research they have and they write glorious you know articles about how wonderful their their particular device or technique is but again, when I listen to a lot of this stuff, and I have been asked in the past to listen to it from a critical standpoint, I find a lot of what I would call very, you know, you better watch that kind of errors in their delivery systems. Hemisync and what I'm doing now with the triad mind, I don't have a technology that I call it, it's just binaural beats. Um, it has been well thought out well-researched for a very long time. We're talking about, you know, 50 years, 45, 50 years. A lot of experimentation, a lot of documentation, a lot of what-ifs and trial and error. So overall, if you are uh, the type of person who wants to pursue binaural beats, um, you know, for inner exploration or exploration beyond the body, there are only two organizations that I can recommend that do that well, and one is the Monroe Institute, and the other one's the TriadMind.com. Yeah, and but, that's uh, because, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say so that, and that's you know, it makes a lot of sense. That's really the original, um, the original source of this technology and of that this this sort of approach. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. But nowadays, if you Google binaural beats, you'll find you know. 12 million pages or something like that. I, I don't know who these folks are. Yeah. Yeah. I saw there was entire podcasts just by normal beats and you can listen to. Yeah. There are a lot of different things. To stop smoking to, I'm not sure quite. It seems to get blend blended with hypnotherapy or something as well. I'm not quite sure how that. Well, I guess it, it, it blends because uh, the state of being both awake and asleep is, can be considered a hypnosis. Of sorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but you, uh, I can tell you right now, Bob Monroe smoked cigarettes his whole life. He made non-smoking tapes. I don't think he really wanted to quit smoking cigarettes. <laughs> no, I think that would be one of the, the key starting points is you have to want, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I believe that they can, you know, binaural beats can be helpful for training the mind, uh, to affect a certain outcome. But the bottom line, it's like uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink sort of thing. Um, you have to do the work. You know, I can buy you a, a wonderful, uh, you know, Peloton bike or, you know, to give Peloton a plug or any other exercise gear, but I can't do the work for you. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you have to you have to exercise yourself. And that's where self-actualization really comes in. You have to take this seriously or you can play games. It's completely up to you. Yeah. Um, Binaural beat or training system. Well, and and it's interesting you mentioned in again in one of the things that you've uh that you wrote. Um there was a couple of programs that Bob developed and they're called the H plus series and the Lifespan yes. two thousand series. Yes. Which you said weren't very well received by the public because they Not didn't all, help basically. people go higher. So I was curious what were those right. programs? What was their intention? 
Right. I didn't hear the end of your, your question. You uh, said the last thing I heard was uh, they didn't help people go higher. Yes. And so, so I'm curious, what was their intention? What was their focus? You mean the intention of H plus and lifespan? Yes. Um, well, H plus came about as a result. And it's interesting because it was literally the first tape series that I worked with when I came to the Monroe Institute. So I was coming from my own experience of meditation into which completely and totally resonated with what was the H plus purpose. And its genesis came as a result of experiences that Bob had out of body where he met with future human beings and those future human beings had what we would consider today somewhat superhuman powers. The telepathy was greatly enhanced. Uh, they really didn't need bodies anymore. And they could manifest their own reality uh, just simply through the power of mind. And he was blown away by this. And he believed that the time to begin to train humanity to do this was now. And so he developed this program called H+. But he didn't really talk about it in the series in the way that he spoke about it in his books. That, those experiences that he relayed in his books were uh, simply his experiences. And, and the people who listened to H Plus didn't really get that experience out of how he was presenting it within the series that came to be known as H Plus. It was just a means of exploring the mind um, and working with the mind to be able to affect a specific outcome in physical time space in, in your life. So if you wanted to quit smoking, there was an H plus um, exercise for that. If you wanted to develop a sense of uh, psychic awareness in a moment, there was an H plus exercise for that. But the exercise itself was predominantly in what he called focus 10 and focus 11 was another little snippet within that, um, was not really very transcendental in nature. And most people, and the same applied to Lifespan 2000 program as a residential program, it was predominantly H plus in a residential format. Okay. People who came to the Institute came to have Bob Monroe's experiences that he wrote about in his books. They wanted the out-of-body experience. So for them to be um, in any way, shape, or form enticed by the idea of self-improvement or coming to their own full potential simply using the mind sim uh, didn't seem to have as great an appeal. But a lot of people, as I said, are subject to uh, coveting uh, you know, the out-of-body experience, and maybe yeah. that's a form of state chasing. Although it's interesting when I think today, you know, that, that those sort of programs by other people seem to have a lot of uh, uh, traction with, you know, creating the whole, the whole manifest, manifesting thing and creating your life mm -hmm. and healing your body through meditation and so on. That seems to right. have taken off uh, big time these days. Right. But for some reason, I guess it's because Bob wrote about the out-of-body experience and not so much about uh, self-improvement or... Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, self-actualization or anything like that. And, you know, you, it's like uh, Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven. Everybody wants to hear the same song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no matter how many times you've had to play it, you know, yeah. that's just where you're at. That's what you're known for.
And so are the, the, those recordings and, and Bob's, um, the general Henny Sink work that, that he produces, is that in the same genre as, so the, the recordings that you gave me were a combination of uh, sound effects mm-hmm. and, yes. you know, different things going and feeling the sounds were traveling across and so on, and, sure. um, and your voice guiding mm-hmm. and, and, and inviting certain kinds of perceptions or experiences is that the general principle with with all of um this hemi-sync work or are there some yeah, that are sound based no i'd say that they're uh, well mind you i've left the institute in 2001 so i can't really say i don't keep up with all of their works now um but when i was there that was the predominant method used and i yeah. continue it today yeah yeah okay well, I have to say you have a, a really excellent voice for the um, for the recording. You know, it's very very soothing, very kind of very calm. And um, but one of the issues that I sometimes have with uh, listening to to voice recordings is that if the instructions in some way don't resonate, yeah, it takes me out of the experience. I'm like, hang on, no, that doesn't quite absolutely fit with where I am. Did you find that to be the case with the two recordings? Well, I had it with one and not the other. So with one, it was really, uh, I was very, I went very deep and I really resonated. And with the other one, I was like, no, that's not happening for me right now. No, I can't relate to that. Right. So then that took right. me out of the, um, yeah. Right. So well, the other, um, the, but believe it or not, the, the voice is not only there to gently guide you into a predictable outcome, or predictable yet potential outcome, I should say, but also to help keep you awake. Because if we were just, and you're welcome, and I do uh, produce um, recordings without any voice instruction whatsoever, um, because, you know, eventually everybody gets to a point where they don't need any guidance from me, you know, and I don't have any particular need to be a, seen as a new age teacher or anything like that. So I'm perfectly happy doing that. But uh, people fall asleep when they listen to just raw uh, binaural beats. And it's also a good idea to help direct people's consciousness towards uh, not only staying awake, but staying somewhat active Mm. uh, as you're changing the binaural beat frequencies to make like uh, transcendent experiences possible. Because uh, in the very beginning of the recordings, when you're using what Bob called his focus 10, which is also referred to as the hypnagogic state, uh, your hypnagogic imagery is what is coming up. You know, you're literally on the threshold between wakefulness and sleep. So it's a bit like dreaming in that what you're seeing in your mind's eye is literally uh, images that come up from the subconscious. A less grounded person or uh, a more susceptible or less curious person might assume that those images might be of the superconscious variety. Uh, images of, uh, say, I don't know, a departed loved one doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're making connection with that departed loved one who lives in the realm of the superconscious, but uh, it could be a need to connect from a subconscious level with somebody that you've not spoken with in some time that uh, is there's something unresolved in your relationship, for instance. Or that person may be an archetypal representation uh, that is trying to give you information 
from the sub superconscious level about where it is that you need to go. So having those types of images show up, well, no, I, I want to take that back. Allowing, using a voice narrative allows for the potential for those things, if they're skillfully done, to show up to affect a specific outcome, as well as keep you awake and engaged. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, you I certainly guess. don't need to listen to me speak to you all day long. You're welcome to take the headphones off at any point in time and go right back into that experience. Another thing that I'm uh, very conscientious of is to not make uh, oh, anybody dependent on anything that I'm making in terms of recordings or binaural beats in general in order for them to facilitate their own growth. People, these are training wheels. That's the way I look at them very realistically. I don't want to you know, create uh, people who are saying, I can't get to a specific state of consciousness unless I'm listening to this particular tape or experience that you've created. Well, that's not true at all from my perspective. Once you've carved a path in your own ability, you can recreate that path over and over and over again. It's exactly why these paths exist to be traveled over. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I, I'd actually never dabbled in binaural beats because I've been quite uh, sort of wanting to avoid tools in a way and 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 really work at it in my own in my own you know through my through controlling the mind and intention and breathing and focus and sort of my own tools. But um, you know, exploring it now is it's really interesting and it's really interesting to see how things shift. Um, well, was, was that your first exposure to a binaural beat recording? Yeah, it was. Someone? Yeah. Oh well, um, I always say listen to it three times. The third time is the charm. Okay. First time the mind goes into. Uh, oftentimes, the mind goes into an analysis type of mode, the conscious mind, trying to make sense of the weird sounds that it's hearing. You know, and there's this. Uh, you know, constant uh, com communication going on between up and down the limbic system from, you know, uh, the part of our mind that is involved in fight or flight. Am I, am I safe? Is this okay? Is, you know, am I going to go too far? You know, you don't know what you're really to experience. And a lot of times, the second time somebody listens, they, uh, they fall asleep because they've already heard it. They've already traveled this path, at least in, in portion in, in uh, consciously they've traveled this path and uh, they find it rather boring because there's not a lot of stimulus on these recordings, as you probably know, except for whatever it is that I'm saying. And I try to not say too much. And there's this monotonous tone going wah, 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 and all the other sound effects that you're hearing. Yeah. It puts the mind to sleep. So, what does the mind do when it goes to sleep? It loses awareness. Third time is usually where the gold nugget appears for people, and then from that point in time, from that point on, you know, anything's possible. Mm. Okay. But I try to uh, make it so that uh, the the narrative that I'm working with, the language I'm using, is open ended and uh, mildly suggestive rather than absolute and directive mm. yeah yeah no that's true
And so uh, it's the intention with, uh, you know, there was two different recordings that you provided me. I think you're on your, your Triad Mind membership. There are, I don't know how many, or there is, there is well, many. There's 60 at this point, yeah. 60. Right. Yeah. And there's a new series. There are two, the Triad Mind program has three stages. I have the first stage released. The second and third stages are still in development. I wanted to make sure I had the research really well thought out before I released it. Uh, stage two is going to be delving into the subconscious really uh, very strongly uh, using lucid dreaming as a means of uh, interacting with subconscious content. And in the third stage, we're going to be dealing with very, very strong transcendent um, experiences. So I wanted to make sure there was a very good foothold presented to anybody who goes through the program so that they don't lose touch with reality while they're exploring realities. Yeah. And so the, the recordings that you provided me with now, they're part of what your current stage one. Um, no, they're, yeah, they the first stage, yeah, the first stage of the program or the first level of membership is uh, just $5 a month. And it's oriented towards people who are lightly engaged in some form of meditation practice that want to look a little bit more deeply into it without any spiritual dogma whatsoever. So the folks who are usually attracted to that level are folks who've heard from their doctor that say uh, meditation is good for sleep, it's good for focusing the mind, it's good for de-stressing. Those things are easily achieved in, in the level one membership. Level two is more spiritually, philosophically oriented but I am uh, I'm very careful to be non-dogmatic and philosophically neutral in my language. So one can explore some of these, and that's where those two recordings came from that you listened to. Okay. Uh, one can explore meditation uh, with more spiritually oriented meditations and the principles of underlying the uh, spiritual um, disciplines that these are these are, are derived from without having to specifically engage in a uh, a particular dogma of belief structure they're very w tailored for the western mindset mm -hmm. stage 3 or level 3 is stage 1 of the triad mind program and the entire program i describe as a um, a a program of self actualization not specifically as Maslow introduced, the Abraham Maslow was a psychologist, a humanist, and he introduced the self-actualization concept, I believe, in the early 60s. And that work, in addition to the work of Carl Jung, in addition to the work of, uh, of Yogananda and any other spiritual teacher that you may come across, all of those combined are what self-actualization truly is. It's not only the ability to learn to control your mind or be an observance of your mind, control your mind, be an observance of your emotions, understand their roots, whether or not they're appropriate, um, but also how to use the mind, the purpose of that training being to know that 
the self in the word self-actualization is much greater than the self than you believe yourself to be. And, and you're actualizing that greater self in your Absolutely. life right in your now. daily life. Yeah. So, so that really, um, I, I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, and I think you've just given me the answer, but I'm just going to read this anyway because I really like this, this, this quote. Uh, it's on your web page. Um, so you say, the narrative of the work of Bob Monroe can be summed up in the phrase, I am more than my physical body. The narrative of the triad mind is summed up in the phrase, I know that I am more than my physical body. Now what? Now what? Right. And I get the impression and that it, now what is what you just spoke to, really. And now what was the underlying theme of H+, plus, uh, that you mentioned before, which is why Bob and I really came to a point of resonance when we first met. Because I was using meditation up to that point in time, although, as I told you earlier, I had had some transcendent experiences. I was using meditation at that point in time to be the best human being that I could be and to achieve my goals professionally, mentally, physically, emotionally. When we spoke about that, and I, and he was telling me about his, uh, his program, I said, wow, that what a wonderful program to offer to the world because it took me up to that point, maybe 10 years to figure out how it was that I could create a method that was foolproof for me. And so I'd been flying blind or intuitively for a long period of time. And here was this guy who's just laying it all out and made it wonderful. But it was so practical, as I told you before, that a lot of people just stayed away. They, they, they didn't find it interesting. That may have changed now. I don't know. But at the time, it, it really um, it hurt Bob to a degree because I don't think he really wanted to be known as Mr. Out-of-Body. I think he wanted to contribute something of real value beyond just, you know, I've written these wonderful books about my out-of-body experiences. It's like, who cares? We all have out-of-body experiences, according to Bob, you know, in his mind. The minute you go into Delta sleep, you've left your body. You know, the problem is, is you don't remember it. And so that, that's like a little dangling carrot in front of you. He and I would talk for hours about, okay, yeah, we finally managed to have these experiences. What does that mean? How does that affect me? What does that uh, mean to my humanity? Uh, what does that mean to how I treat other people, how I'm in relationship to my life, uh, relationship to other people, relationship to the earth, relationship to the, to the cosmos. All of these things are part of the self-actualization process, and they really can't be addressed if you're focusing on just one aspect of life, which in his case was the out-of-body experience or one potential experience. There's a lot of experience to be had in life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the really important things to see is that people can have out-of-body experiences and not through that necessarily be more connected to their physical life. And in fact, even potentially become alienated from their physical life, right? If you're yeah. in those states. But, right. but so maybe to, to end on, on uh, that, you know, where, what are, how do you see the benefits of, out-of-body experiences if they're integrated um, properly? I would say the, 
the greatest experience one can have is to know that they are not a product of their mind, their brain. That they, they, they and the out of body experience is one way that, that tells you that. It tells you that you survive physical death. That's uh, maybe enough for some people because, you know, let's face it, the fear of death in some people is just extreme and underlying and, uh, and, and rules their perception subconsciously in just about every move they make. That said, if you know that you survive physical death, then you have some choices to make. You know, how do I want to live my life? What is the purpose of my life? If my, if I know that I survived physical death, then I have to ask, when, when, when did my self, when did my life really begin? Did it begin at my, my first breath, you know, or perhaps preceded my first breath? And, and then we can get into the idea of past lives. Uh, people tried, have tried to answer these questions through the ages forever. They're important questions, but I think they're important questions because they need to be remained somewhat mysterious and unanswered so that we will continue to pursue the answer through curiosity, which is why belief structures are so much of a, a stumbling block. Once you have a belief structure that's concretized and lives as, and you identify with that belief structure, you have an answer. There's no more curiosity. You're not exploring the truth. You're not going deeper. I can't make you do that. I don't even want to try. But I can tell you that if you do try, not you specifically, I guess I'm talking to your listenership as well, that if you do try, if you stay curious, you're going to get a real prize out of this, which will manifest itself not only in your perception of afterlife, but in your perception of life. Because what you are really is a whole lot more than physical matter. But what you do with that information is just as important as the discovery that you are more than physical matter. I'm more than my physical body. Now what? Now what? Yeah. And you don't even have to have had the out-of-body experience to really know that you're more than physical matter. All you need to do is have that simple springboard experience that Bob called Focus 10. Once you realize that your body is sleeping and your mind is still awake, once you hear yourself snore for the first time and you realize that your sleeping partner's complaints are completely valid, <laughs> you discover something. You've really landed on something there. Yeah, you've really landed on something. The mind and the body are two different things, and yet they're com complete constant process, as well as a, a discrete thing. Yeah, no, that's a it's really a precious experience. The sleeping body, waking mind. Yeah, yeah. it really is, and there's and that's only the beginning. Yeah, it's just stay curious. Well, this is what I think. I mean, the issue about belief structures. You know, I feel like. The, the question is always whether we stop somewhere because if you if you um, if you know you're more than your physical body and if you know that you've had lives before this life and you know that you'll go somewhere it, it, you could say well now I'll stay with that now this is what I know and that's it or that can open up more questions and more questions and and 
you know, give rise to more curiosity. So, right. which it's, I think yeah. is the scientific endeavor, right? That's really taking the scientific, bringing science and spirituality together. It is. And one of the beautiful things about consciousness and nature in general is that uh, it seems to be um, discovered in terms of boundary lines or thresholds, which is why rather than focus levels, I call the, the levels thresholds, where you, you reach to the maximum of your threshold and then peer beyond the threshold and discover there's a whole vast territory there that you didn't even know existed, like the goldfish in a bowl. You know, I mean, we can. That's a beautiful thing about consciousness is that if you learn to use it, it becomes uh, the most effective tool for life that could ever be used short of, well, I, I don't want to exclude the body. Without the, you know, you, you look at the mind of Stephen Hawking's and his poor body was, you know, in, uh, in such a state, yet his mind was completely and totally free. Um, when you get down to science, uh, it's the same type of thing. You know, scientists think they find a specific answer to everything. And then, you know, like in the case of, uh, I, I don't know if it's fair to make a comparison with viruses, but we thought we understood quite a lot about viruses. And this new one is showing us some different things. So, you know, all of life is uh, still mysterious enough if yeah. you want to be curious. But yeah. in doing so, you gain more knowledge, you gain more experience, you gain needed things, which I think is the whole reason to be here on planet Earth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so to wrap up, uh, Mark, the Triad Mind, where can people find, find you, find it, out more about that? That's the website, right? It is a website, the triadmind.com, and on there is a lot of written material for you to peruse. Some people think it's too much information and wish that I would, you know, simplify it with a lot of lovely new age buzzwords that, you know, entice. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is I want to be as authentic and truthful about this thing that I understand, my understanding about consciousness, uh, as I possibly can. And it lives only as a website. I don't give seminars or workshops. I'm not, I have no intentions of writing books. But on the website itself is, at this point, 60 recordings for you to really delve into the uh, notion of that you can explore consciousness in a unique way. And if you do it, as I said, you, you get a prize. But I, you know, you can have these recordings available to you. But if you don't listen to them, nothing I can do for you. <laughs> so, but it's very inexpensive if you want to just get involved. If you're already seriously uh, involved in deep inner work or spiritual practice, you'll find that the uh, recorded exercises gel nicely with your spiritual practice and inner work because uh, it, as I said before, I, I take a very syncretic view towards consciousness and it's non-dogmatic and very neutral philosophically speaking. I'm not trying to, uh, to teach somebody a dogma or uh, tell them about the mysteries of life in a, in a book because I don't have all the answers for you, but you do if you take the courage to explore. Yeah. 
And it sounds like in that, in that spirit, you're really continuing the work of Bob Monroe, you know, in your own way, in your own unique. I am more than my physical body. Now what? I spent yeah. seven years playing with Bob in that realm and I continue to this day, although he passed in 95. Yeah. His, his work is definitely in, uh, felt and his influence is felt within the work that I'm presenting now. I, there's no way for me to, to, uh, or nor would I want to get away from that. Yeah. But I have modified it back to its original intention, or at least the intention that we uh, we had found ourselves so fascinated with all those years ago. Yeah. Well, look, thanks so much, Mark, for coming on and for, for bringing your own work and through you um, the spirit of Bob Monroe. I really appreciate that. Now the pleasure is mine, Kim. It was a pleasure to finally get to meet you face-to-face and hear your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Social media is nice, but I, I prefer interaction. Even yeah, if it's exactly. still in the virtual world. Yeah. Thank you very much for asking. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it? The tune seeing us out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.